Well, friends, as the story is told, we don't know what Mary Magdalene was expecting when she went to the tomb that first Easter morning or just what she was going to do there. In her grief, she may have been wondering if the morning would ever come again. John tells us that Mary went to the cemetery by herself. That it was still dark might suggest she hadn't slept well during the night or perhaps did not want to be seen. Why does anyone visit a cemetery? As with Mary, grief brings people initially, grief, loss, a longing to fill the empty hole that's opened up. After the funeral, no one expects to return to find the grave disturbed. Cemeteries are all about finality, endings, things that have been and never will be again. Maybe like me, you've discovered that a cemetery can be a place of comfort and solace. I rather like them. And given my line of work, I've walked through my share of cemeteries over the years. I've wandered among the markers and have spent time reading names and dates and inscriptions. And I've sat under expansive leafy trees on pleasant days, remembering people I have known who are no more, which leads me inevitably to wondering about the number of years I might have remaining and just what I've been doing in the meantime with the ones that I have. Mary's visit came too soon for solace and self-reflection. She came freighted with all of the oppressive events of Jesus' last days haunting her mind, her heart, her soul, her whole being, I imagine. You know, after all, she still had the crucifixion, the scene of the crucifixion seared into her brain. It was just some rush of hours a short while ago. She was raw with a rapid and violent devolution of Jesus' campaign. Is that what it was? Was was Jesus on some sort of campaign? And, and if so, to what end exactly? Certainly not this end, not this end, capital E. But he'd been placed in a grave, dead, gone, finished. And when Mary discovered the tomb had been tampered with, she thought that his body had been stolen. The way John writes it, Mary runs to the disciples to tell them breathlessly, they have taken the Lord. We aren't told who the they are, but we could surmise that Mary fears those who put him to death were not finished desecrating his remains, perhaps moving him to a pauper's grave or throwing him on the garbage heap outside of town. She drew a logical conclusion based on life as she had known it. 
After all, the ruthless and the arrogant inherited the earth, not the meek and the poor in spirit. The dissemblers, the manipulators, and the takers of the world were filled, not those who hungered for righteousness. The merciful rarely received mercy, and Mary never heard peacemakers called children of God except from Jesus. But he was dead. And now his body was stolen, and she wept with grief. Now, friends, right here is the linchpin of the Christian faith. We're right at the heart of the mystery and the way the story is told. What we have is an empty tomb, a somewhat ignorant and terrified group of would-be followers, and taking all the gospel stories together, a convoluted hodgepodge of confusing facts and storytelling Man, oh man, I have wished we had more to go on here sometimes. The reported evidence appears so tissue thin. But then from a higher vantage point, that very thinness seems to inform the essence of faith. Here's how John says it goes down for Mary. After Peter and another disciple come to see the tomb for themselves, Mary is once again left by herself in her grief, weeping. Still believing that someone has taken Jesus' body, she turns and sees a man she thinks is a gardener. And she asks him if he's the grave robber. Jesus looks at her and simply says her name. Mary. Or when Daniel read it, he was more poignant. He said, Mary! And with this, she sees him for who he is, the first witness to resurrection. When Jesus calls her name, all of the doors and windows of Mary's soul are flung wide. No barrier prevents the profound and intimate connection. Jesus is fully present to her and she to him. Nothing is hidden. And in this astonished state, she learns that things are not always as they appear. There are layers to reality that she has sensed but never really understood. It's as though scales fall from her eyes and she's able to see reality from a multidimensional perspective for the very first time in her life. As I've been thinking about it this week, the closest material approximation I can make to this is when someone who loves me says my name in a moment of acute awareness and presence. Has this ever happened to you? Your best friend or your spouse or your partner or a family member, even a child who knows you very well, who loves you, during a moment of honest engagement says your name while looking without reservation into your face and it hits you, it strikes you that you are truly known to this person and they offer a love that is larger than you perceive that you deserve. Now if you've ever come close to sharing an experience like this, you know that it changes you. 
The naming changes you. Your insides become larger. Things clarify. You sense this love makes you a better person somehow. Their love for you makes you a better person somehow. Yet you'd be very hard-pressed to describe the facts of the experience in any meaningful way. We were out to dinner sharing a bowl of pasta. We were on our way to a meeting and the car broke down. We were walking down the sidewalk when it started to rain. The external circumstances, for the most part, are absolutely inconsequential to the acuteness of the experience. This, friends, is but a shadow box portrayal of the love released in resurrection. Resurrection, because resurrection is, after all, a work of love. An astonishing, awesome, heart-rending, courage-enabling, hope-inducing, life-transforming love. Again, the reported details of the story have a limited range because describing the essence of something the size and scope of resurrection love is nearly impossible. Our words and descriptors inevitably fail. They are not large enough and we wind up talking in metaphors and analogies and poetry or creating buildings like this filled with sparkling mosaics or writing music and wringing so much passion out of it because the love is so large, so awesome, so overwhelming. The other day I was having a conversation with someone who had walked in here several years earlier because, as he told me, of a nagging experience of God's intimate presence in his life. He told me he had grown up in a non-religious household. But from early on, he had this sense of a holy and profoundly intimate presence. And as a result, he started looking for ways to deepen the connection. And though he did not hear a mystical voice call out his name, everything he reports suggests that he knows he is understood and held and loved in a way that defies description. This relationship slowly impacted his life, agitating his decisions and commitments. Honestly, as he told his story, I felt I was hearing a variation of my own. I, too, knew this holy presence from an early age. Oh, I went through my agnostic phase in my teens and early 20s when I was telling everyone I didn't know what I believed, but I was lying, really. Eventually, the church and the scriptures gave me a language and a pathway to understanding this experience, which led me to help introduce others to the one who knows their authentic name. I know for certain, as certain as faith determines, that this one has set the ground beneath our feet and knit us together in our mother's wombs and inflated our lungs with breath. I know that more than nearly anything else I could describe. Now to add nuance to my point here, consider what we do when we mean to harm, demean, or disrespect others. What do we do? We abuse their names. We make new names for them. And consider how this 
functions with every sort of prejudice between races and classes and sexual identities and religions and enemies of every kind. Derogatory names are assigned, hateful names, names meant to put up barriers, names intended to strip dignity and humanity of those on the receiving end of our ugliness. In Auschwitz and Treblinka and other gruesome destinies, names were exchanged for numbers tattooed onto this skin so as to obliterate prisoners' humanity and their identity and their dignity. In direct rebuke to this diminishment of an individual, the resurrected Jesus called out, Mary! And she was known in her innermost being. Known, claimed, and loved. Deeply intimate experience and profoundly personal. In the naming, she realizes there is nothing that separates her from him, nothing. No prior condition, no fault, failing, or weakness, no limitation, nothing. Just a few days ago, the disciples had majored in cowardice and betrayal of their best friend. They let him die alone, bereft. Lied about their association with him. Honestly, their transformation is a far better proof of the resurrection than the written reports of the supposed events, I think, if physical proof is what you're after. I agree with William Sloan Coffin, who said that not only Peter, but all of the apostles after Jesus' death were ten times the people they were before. Ten times the people after his death and before his death. That's irrefutable. Convinced by his appearance that Jesus was their living Lord, the disciples really had only one category in which to articulate this conviction. And that was a brand new category, resurrection. In Paul's writings, the living Christ and the Holy Spirit are never clearly differentiated so that when he says, not I, but Christ who dwells within me, he's talking about the very same Holy Spirit that you and I can experience in our own lives. I myself believe passionately in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because in my own life I have experienced Christ not as a memory but as a presence. So today on Easter we gather not as it were to close the show with thanks for the memory, but rather to reopen the show with the hymn, Jesus Christ is risen today. An astonishing gift of love, by love, for love's sake. Did you possibly come here today to receive that gift? Is that remotely possible You know, friends, love and its derivatives are the only authentic, positive change agents there are. Think about that. If someone is changing for the better, love is somehow at work. If authentic justice occurs, a broken relationship is restored, the spirit of resurrection is there. 
the new thing is being born. If children are held and cared for, forgiveness happens. The lost, abandoned, and oppressed and abused receive the dignity of being called by their name with compassionate regard. I tell you, resurrection is afoot, and Jesus lives for certain. Hallelujah.